Welcome to the Regista Room, the podcast where soccer goes off field. Here's your host, Paul Varian. Hello, 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 Paul Varian with you in the Regista Room. Welcome, everyone, to you returning Regista Roomers. Welcome back. And to you newbies, welcome to the room. And, you know, speaking of viewership, I was looking at the analytics of this podcast just the other day. Uh, you know, since I've started it just a few months ago, I was curious to see who's actually listening. And I was amazed to see the number of register rumors that we have from around the world. So, as you know, this podcast was set up to look at, uh, I guess, how off-field soccer issues are managed within, for, by and large, North America. So, as you'd expect, many of the listeners are from Canada and the U.S., given this podcast broadcasts from Canada. But there are register rumors from other faraway places. So we have listeners from Mexico. We have listeners from the UK, Ireland, as far away as the United Arab Emirates. And unbelievably, we have listeners in Ukraine. So thank you all for listening to the register room. But to my Ukrainian listeners, we hope you are safe and well and still able to listen in. So I hope you enjoyed the last episode, which was on board leadership. And I also hope you've learned and had a bit of a laugh from the e-tutorial Capitus Consulting has released on the subject of running great sport board meetings. It featured a fictitious board that was kind of comical, but serious and a little bit tragic at the same time. If you haven't rented that tutorial, do so. It's kind of fun, but also a great way to learn about how to run Great sport board meetings. Tell me who your favourite character is in that boardroom, folks. Was it Colin, the cantankerous technical director? Kevin, the pain in the ass parent on the board? Maybe Andrew, the aimless chairman? Maybe someone else? Let me know right now at comments at registerroom.com. And I do hope you've a chance to rent and view Capitus Consulting's 30 tutorial, which has just dropped last week on strategic planning. I'm seeing a lot of sport organizations right now moving back into planning mode as they start to realize that maybe, just maybe, and maybe hopefully this pandemic is in the books and it's time to plan for the future in this new post-pandemic world. So if you can hire consultants to do that planning for you and help you, that's great. But if you're short on resources and need a playbook on how to build your new strategic plan, it's all explained clearly to you in this easy-to-watch tutorial. Rent it now, capitalistlearning.com. um, and subscribe while you're at it and then you can watch your rental when you want where you want and as many times as you want during the week of your rental it's not even forty dollars folks for a full week to rent any of these tutorials so go get one and if that's not enough for you i'm going to secretly reveal to you now the theme of the next episode of the register room which will drop sometime in april will in fact be that of planning. So make sure you watch the strategic plan tutorial and tune in here at the next episode to hear great case study interviews we'll have for you on that topic. Oh, deep breath, so much going on. So, so far on the register room, we've covered the themes of mindset, innovation, and board leadership. This episode's theme is a close cousin to them, culture. We're going to take a look at this often used but seldom understood term and explore through some great interviews with soccer club leaders what culture looks like in action in our business. You know, a great organizational effectiveness leader in Vancouver, British Columbia, by the name of Ross Ramsey, defined culture once to me as 
the way things are done around here, or as they say in the great Atlantic province of Newfoundland in eastern Canada, the way we do it. It sounds whimsical and vague, but that's because culture is often, well, whimsical and vague, isn't it? It's difficult to control and manage because it's difficult to define and quantify. And this is so because culture doesn't come from what people are instructed to do. It comes from what people choose to do and what their associated value chain is, which is essentially what they choose to prioritize ahead of other things. Sport people love to program stuff. So culture is largely ignored because you simply can't program culture. It's all that touchy-feely stuff. There's no X's and O's, no scores and standings, or other tangible, programmable things to be seen. So when it's left unmanaged and unled, culture in amateur soccer organizations is largely driven by individuals, and those individuals are usually the coaches, and in the case of youth soccer, the parent groups of the youth players. And that makes sense. The parents pay the freight, right? They, so they set the rules of the game, so to speak. But these systems of culture aren't planned, organized or coordinated. So they're generally utterly chaotic. Coaches are off doing their own thing, often under the umbrella of the concept of a team to justify it all. And the result is many amateur soccer clubs sadly don't have a cross cross-club culture or associated identity and they're merely just a collection of independent subcultures defined around coaches and their respective teams of players and parents all of them working independently of each other towards the same arbitrary goal of winning a local league trophy made of plastic hey at least it's painted gold right the fact is culture will always exist in your soccer club but the question is are you prepared to actively define it, control it, and maintain it to ultimately shape your club's identity? This episode of The Register Room is all about getting ahead of your club's culture and driving it, not chasing after it as it barnstorms through your club like a wrecking ball. And it's really important that you do this. You may have heard this, but they say culture eats strategy for breakfast, and that's absolutely true. Ignore it at your peril. As a leader of your soccer organization, which I'm assuming you are, you cannot manage and develop your club the way you want without having a strong command of its culture. Remember, planning tells us what we should do. Policies tell us how we should act. But culture ultimately determines what we actually choose to do and how we do it. So fine, Paul, I hear you say. Culture is important. We get it. So how do we wrestle this slippery beast to the ground? Well, as always in the register room, we seek to show, not preach. So today, after the break, we have three fantastic interviews for you, showcasing compelling, unique and very different case studies from three different countries on how success organizationally and athletically was driven by starting with the concept of culture and building out from there. When we return on the register room, where amateur soccer goes off field. Are you an amateur sport leader looking for quality professional development? If so, your search is over. Introducing Capitalist Consulting's new sport business tutorial series. We'll teach you what you need to do to run your club better. These tutorials target the key areas of sport business. Governance, risk, planning, marketing, technical oversight, sponsorship, and modern volunteerism. Access and enjoy these tutorials when you want and where you want. Go to capitaslearning.com and get learning with me today. 
Do you have a story to tell? The Regista Room is built on real-world stories and experiences from amateur soccer clubs everywhere that we can explore, discuss, and learn from. Have you innovated a solution to a problem, challenged the norm, tried something different, thought outside the box, or taken a risk, and it's paid off? If so, we want to hear from you on the Regista Room. Contact us today with your story at content at registaroom.com and let's better the game with our shared soccer experiences. Welcome back to the Regista Room, where on this, our fourth episode, we're focusing on the theme of culture. So let's move to our first example of culture in action on the ground in community club soccer in North America. And what a fantastic example of how to live and breathe your culture and values in everything you do in a club this is coming up. North Carolina Fusion is a large not-for-profit sports club serving the triad region of Winston-Salem, Greensboro and High Points in the state of North Carolina in the United States. The club runs soccer programs at both youth and adult level for around 7,000 players, both able-bodied and all abilities. Aside from the soccer... The club also offers field hockey and lacrosse programs and is looking at doing more in other sports. Importantly, North Carolina Fusion was formed relatively recently in 2018 through merger of other local soccer organizations, in particular two large ones in Twin Cities Sports Association and Greensboro United Soccer Association. And I say importantly because this this amalgamation at an organizational level allowed the club to clearly set its new identity with the values and culture that underpin it right from the birth of the new organization. The result is a thriving club that has a clear understanding of itself, how it does things and what it stands for. A key driver of this has been the club's chief executive officer, Scott Wollaston. Scott's got a grounding in playing and coaching soccer, and he's made the admirable transition from technical leadership in the game to organizational leadership of a large, complex sports organization, as is North Carolina Fusion. A big reason for his success has been his all-in approach to prioritizing attitude, mindset, and character in people ahead of skills or other trainable attributes. Taking this approach... Scott's championed the development of a value system at the Fusion that everyone buys into, which in turn has created a strong work environment and rewarding place for all, from staff to coaches, officials, volunteers, athletes, and their parents if they're youth players. I caught up with Scott to discuss how he's done this. Take a listen. Well, wonderful to have you on, Scott. And uh, um, tell us about the system that you've put in there in recent times to inherently build the delivery and receipt of feedback and self-improvement in your team uh, across the board, how you, how you discovered that and how you went about putting it in place. Yeah, it's a great question. And I would say that um, based on our uh, core value of humility, I, I want to admit that while I'll share with you with some of the things that we've put in place, we're not quite there yet. And um, we will continue to improve in this area. So I'll, I'll share with you some of the things that, We've put in place from a feedback perspective um, some of the culture that you, you you discussed and how that's kind of occurred, and then sort of what we are currently in the process of of doing to continue to improve that. So uh, the the first thing it, it all kind of starts with uh, I mentioned the core value of humility. We we have four core values in our organization: um, trust, humility, community, and development. Um, development. 
the perspective of that is that each each um, individual involved in this process has an opportunity to improve. Um, kind of that uh, art of Sun Tzu, Kaizen, continuous improvement. Um, that that should be the case for players. That should be the case for um, us as parents, even, um, and, and helping our children and being supportive of the club. And then, it, obviously, uh, for the organization and our and our coaching staff. Um, so, in terms of the the, the the core value of development, we knew that we needed to, you can invest in development and, and have people come and speak to your staff and send people on courses. But ultimately, if you don't have a culture of people wanting that, then improvement really doesn't happen. So we, um, one, we, we actively seek out people that are going to be on our staff that have a growth mindset um, that truly want to improve, that realize that whether or not they had this wonderful experience and they have an A license and they had 20 years of in the pros, um, that's great. But what are you, how, how do you see yourself continuing to improve? And um, we have a system in place. Uh, it's a behavioral based system um, that we use for all of our interview processes. We work with a group called uh, Talent Intelligent that, um, you know, Basically, we, we set up a, uh, an interview system that asks questions that are behaviorally based that helps us determine whether somebody has certain qualities, one of them being a growth mindset um, and, um, and wants to improve. The fact is, is that if you ask somebody in a typical interview process, like all of us who aren't professional interviewers, we, are, we say... Um, do you like to, are you, are you, do you believe in improving? Oh, of course. How, how is, yeah. <laughs> how someone, it's the same question of like, tell me about your work ethic. Oh, I work, you know, nine to five awesome. plus, 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 <laughs> plus. And I, I, I do everything for the, like people can answer that way, but a behavioral based, um, interview process allows you to sh- have the person show you, yeah, give you examples of when have they done that? Tell me a time that you, you know, tell me a time that this, and um, that's really helped getting the right people on the bus to start having that culture of development. Um, The people that are in the club um, in terms of, okay, how do you figure out? Because again, we've, we brought everything together less than four years ago and trying to um, evolve this culture into what we want it to be. There's a lot of people that are already on the bus, right? And you're trying to decide who needs to stay. Um, who needs to get off the bus, who, if they're on the bus, what seat should they be on? You know, the whole good to great um, scenario. Um, and, and I think that we have uh, quickly learned who are the people that really want to improve. And one of the ways that we can do that is, I think, getting to what you wanted me to talk about was this feedback process that we've put in place for our staff and our players that's called, it's very simple. It's called WWWEBI. What went well, even better if. Very mm. simple, can be used in, um, you know, we have a staff meeting and you can go up to somebody and say, after the meeting, the person that led the meeting, here's what went well, but it'd be even better if you did this, right? Um, and instead of it being like, wow, you know, you, you just attacked me with feedback, it's, man, everybody's asking for it now. Hey, I just finished this meeting. Can everybody share with me a, a WWW and an EBI? And you get you get ten emails. 
And I'm like, okay, that's good. Oh, great idea. Yeah. I shouldn't have talked so long about that. Yeah. That was probably a waste of time. Oh, I should have been more prepared. Right. And, and, and all of a sudden there's this like, does not only is there improve, do you see improvement, but um, you see people like just craving feedback and asking for it. And, and that, that didn't happen overnight, you know, and it's not with everybody, but certainly um, the majority of our staff, but at the end of anything they do, they're like, guys, get, make sure you email me with WWEBI. And then if there's more that needs to get into it, we do it. Uh, it's not like I, um, as quote, CEO of the organization, like have mandated some system. Um, and I'll give you a perfect example that um, last weekend, um, I was on the way to my kids' games and trying to get them sorted as dad. And I started getting texts from people about with questions about, hey, this isn't organized properly or that wasn't organized. And I shot a tech, a group text message to people that I felt like should be on top of this saying, guys, why is this, why is this not sorted? You know, we need to get on top of this. Okay. In the, in the moment, you know, I'm hurrying, hurrying around with, as a dad and I send this. That afternoon, my, um, my chief experience officer, the person that she's wonderful and, and keeps me in check and does an amazing job implementing all these crazy high level things that I'm always thinking about. She makes the traction happen. She texts, she called me and she said, I just want to let you know, um, I thought that your, your text message wasn't appropriate. I think that um, you should have, you should have called the one person that it really pertained to and to see if they really needed to take care of that. And it was one of those oof, moments, like here I am supposed to be leading this organization, be a good example. But you know, I really appreciate it. I, I'm, I'm like, yeah, that's unacceptable. Is not okay, and I'm going to do better. And I called every single person on that text chain and apologized to them and said that was not the way to do things. So I, I think if we didn't have um, this culture, then 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 it would really be hard for like even myself as a leader of the organization to be called out for things that I'm still human and I still make plenty of mistakes. So I think that I just want to say that you know as 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 you're talking to other leaders, we all have to be really humble to say that this is not like something that applies to the organization. It applies to all of us and has to be, has to be allowed to go up and down and around all the time with that feedback. I would say that the, the biggest lesson that I have learned um, over the last four years in terms of setting culture is, and you sort of alluded to it, but culture is not always the things that you set in place. It's the things that it's the things that you actually um, allow to happen. And I think, um, you know, if I was to look over the last four years, I think um, that some of the biggest mistakes I've made have been around allowing uh, things that were counter the culture that I really wanted in place. I allowed it to still happen and didn't call it out for what it was, or perhaps, you know, get that person off the bus or yeah. uh, whatever it might be. And, and, and I know we all struggle with like, when I say getting the right person off the bus, it's not like a, 
you know, a machine and you're just like, yeah, get rid of them. It's, it doesn't, it's not <laughs> like that. We know yeah. that it, we know it get, it's so much deeper. There's personal relationships that we've built. There's trust that we've built. There's um, you, you coaches don't grow on trees. You know, like it's not, you don't just replace somebody. Like there's 50 people waiting to jump in their seat. I, I, you know, none of that, like, it's like, bang, they're off the bus or anything like that. But I, but I do think that once you realize what culture you want to have, you're, you're, you're constantly trying to reinforce it by the systems you put in place. You're reinforcing it by the people you put in place. You're reinforcing it by modeling it. But then you also, again, the mistake I made was that there are people in your organization that are, um, are not doing that and they're going against it. And what we don't realize is that we can do all these things up top that I just said, and th- that little bit at the bottom can pull everything, can just start chipping away at that culture that you're trying to create. You got to like, you got to protect it. I think I, someone, I forget what I've read that basically you, once you have that culture you want, you protect it, it like, yeah. like a baby, you know, your little baby It is got to, no, that's not acceptable. It's out, yeah. you know? Um, it's interesting though. Yeah. It's interesting because, you know, when you, when you talk about that, we, we have a propensity in not-for-profit sport at large, and we're particularly bad at it up here in Canada, where we're the nation of saying sorry, you know. <laughs> we, we tend to work around problems. We tend yeah. not to work through them. And that's particularly pertinent with people. You know, no, nobody wants to have a hard conversation with somebody, particularly if it means you know marching them out of the organization. But you're right. Those, those agitators can really disrupt the system, and people see that they're still there. And as long as they're still there, they may not buy in. Yep. So, so protection of that culture, you're, you're right. It's really, really important. I'm wondering whether you found when you put this in place, because you mentioned, and, and it's without a question, I'm glad you went to it, Scott, because when you the fear of change is very often the fear of losing things, mm. right? It might be people, it might be results, it might be yep. money, it might be market, might be reputation but the fear of loss is what really people fear with change Mm. so when you put something in place where you change the very environment people work in the first reaction is we're going to lose everyone and as you said volunteers coaches don't grow in trees you just can't replace them and churn through people did you find that there are a whole different constituency of people that came forward that you didn't know about when you created this culture or or was it a matter of changing the people you had i'm just interested to know if there was if there was a net gravitation in as a, I'm sure you lost people, but were there people that came in too? You know, um, I guess, I guess I would use the example. Now we, we, we did a 10 year strategic plan over the winter. Um, and part of that strategic plan, there were two, uh, two particular items that, uh, we had, to, we needed to make two new hires that we felt like we had, we had gaping holes that were like, if we don't hire this, we can't reach our vision. Um, so, the two people that we hired, um, I would argue, uh, we would have four years ago never had a chance, never had a chance that this quality, the quality of people, not just skillful, but like believes in the mission, wants to work hard, but yet, but believes in work-life balance. That everything that we believe in, they believed in. We would have never, ever, ever attracted them, and they moved family. I mean, moved family to North Carolina yeah. where they were super established in other associations or whatever they were doing, because they said, we, we can not only have we um, 
heard you talk about what the club is like and the culture. We are, we actually speak to people in your organization that are saying that this is what it's like. And, and, and now they've been here, you know, four or five months and uh, they just, both of them just recently spoke at our board meeting about their experience so far. And they said um, everything that, that Scott was telling me about the organization um, it, there were no, there weren't any lies. This is what it is. And even better than that. And I don't do that to like, I'm not saying that to toot my horn. I guess what I'm saying is, is that, yes, we are attracting people, quality people because of the fact that the culture has evolved in the past, man, we were, it was a struggle to hire people. There was no, and certainly we're struggling. The only reason that they were coming was because they wanted to coach at a certain level. And maybe we provided that and they couldn't get it in another club, or maybe we paid a little bit more or something like that. But that stuff is all, that's all fleeting, right? It's like one year could be that, but then next year, who knows? Whereas if you talk about, Hey, here's where we're going in the next 10 years, we want you to be a part of that. We think you can add value here and here's what, who we are and where we're headed. And if you do that well, and, it's not just a something you got on a sign outside or, you know, a packet that says it's your 10 year strategic plan, but they can go to let go to 10 different staff members and hear the same thing. That is when, that is when people start to go, I want to be a part of that. And um, that's what's happened. But I'll be honest, I haven't seen, I didn't see the fruit of that until I would argue three years into NC Fusion's merger. Yeah, but it's interesting. I mean, it's, it's, I'm so glad you said that. And I hope listeners who are standing on the edge of this really listen to what Scott has had to say there. And I I mentioned it and don't blame the soccer parents too. There were people that came to work for, for, for clubs I've worked in that had, that had ambition and scary ambition that we Mm -hmm. felt would actually scare people away rather than bring people in. And it's amazing the people that are standing around you keeping quiet when the organization is not attractive to them that will mm-hmm. suddenly come out of the trees or out of the cornfields or whatever it might be mm-hmm. um, uh, and and put their hand up when they see the organization moving culturally and identity-wise and vision-wise to what they want, not tactically. It's yeah. all about, is this worth my time? Is Does this align with what me as a person uh, um, uh, represents and, and, and is? So, so Scott, that's I mean, congratulations! It's really incredible to listen to what you've done in such a relatively short period of time. And you mentioned it is a work in progress, and I'm sure there are continued bumps in the road. But you really have gone in an incredible way there to to create what looks to be really robust culture because it's literally from the player out, and and everyone mm-hmm. seems to buy in. And you defend it, as you say, by getting the people into your organization who can and will buy into it, and if necessary moving people out who don't have the mindset to 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 operate in this kind of environment so uh i want to really thank you scott wolliston uh of can i uh, can i yes, share with you one ahead. other thing paul please like, do yeah I, I go know, ahead i know i said at the beginning about the um you know where are we headed next like what's kind of the next step yeah um and and within within our um within our culture we we talk about the fusion way and the fusion way there's a you can go to our website and, and look at it. There's a triangle that represents the the stakeholders that are in um, in sport. You've got your player at the top. You've got your coach or staff here, and you've got your parents or families here. 
And in between each of those triangles, you've got these, you've got an arrow going in both directions. The fact is, is the player cannot have the best experience in sport if um, not only they have to have good relationship between player and coach, but they also have to have good relationship between um, player and parent. Same thing from coach. Coach can only provide the best environment possible for the player if they have a great relationship with parents. Great does not mean like chummy, go have a, a beer with them. What it means is that there's an open line of communication and that whole, let's loop it back to what we talked about at the beginning in terms of feedback. Mm-hmm. I think that within youth sports and, and, and still prevalent even within our organization, parents are typically, um, one, they're either... Um, scared to share feedback for fear of retribution to their child um, or, and that may have come from previous um, experiences, right? right? Coaches did uh, right. blackball their child or, or didn't treat them fairly because mom was crazy and, and sent the scathing email. But what, what we're trying to create is in this system of feedback is parents should be able to communicate with coach about their child forget player, forget athlete, their child, who knows their child best and what makes them tick. We should be craving as coaches, the parents feedback, not on the field, not, not like they should play left back, but we want feedback in terms of like, Hey, my child has had, is having a really rough time in school right now. Um, like their emotion, like, like very emotionally unstable right now at 13 gone through some really tough stuff like if you don't mind like they might need probably need more positivity positivity out of you than negativity um right now like fine with you like giving them the truth but maybe they need a little bit more the coach needs to hear that and like there's a there is a there is a value in in their feedback to coach about their player and i think that in new sports we've we, you know, you, you go anywhere and you say, what's the problem with youth sports? It's like, parents are crazy. You know, it's too expensive. Like it's always the same things, but like, let's dig down. Why is it, let's go, it's too, it's too expensive. Well, it's too expensive because people are expecting more and a better product always. If you expect a better product in anything, a better car, a better, I don't know, dinner experience, you pay a little bit more because the people behind it are maybe more experts at it and are dedicated to it more. And they're trying to build a career or a, a, a business or a, a, a nonprofit organization or whatever it may be. That, that's what that is. It's not that it's too expensive. It's just it costs money to provide the best experience possible. Yeah. But the other part of it with parents, parents in and of itself, we keep saying that. But what are we doing to really engage with them? And truly get them to be a part of this process and show them what it's not, what it shouldn't be, but how can they help us? And I think, um, I think there's a real opportunity there. And we are, we are getting to the point now in our feedback process and what we're getting ready to launch is um, when and, and how parents will be able to do what went well, even better if with their, with the coach. And then I'm going to throw this crazy one at you. Kid or player does it to their does parent the and yeah. does it to their coach as well. Like imagine as a parent, you get, you know, a what won't well. Hey, what won't well, dad, you got me to the game on time. Even better if you didn't shout at me the whole yeah, time. I mean, no it's a, like imagine hearing from your kid and, and 
and that being in writing, <laughs> yeah. um, you'd probably start improving. Scott, this has been amazing. Um, I want to thank you so much uh, for being on the register room today. Scott Wollaston from North Carolina. Thanks so much for joining me. Absolutely. Thank you. Hey, amateur soccer club leaders. Are you looking for a complete reference on how to run a great amateur soccer club, but all you can find are books on how to coach kids? Introducing Amazon's number one bestseller, Don't Blame Your Soccer Parents, your complete guide on how to run a successful amateur soccer club covering everything from managing your boardroom to overseeing your director of coaching or raising corporate sponsorship. Based on real-world experiences from internationally renowned sports consultant and professional speaker Paul Berry, Don't Blame the Soccer Parents rolls its sleeves up and tackles all the hands-on club management issues you need to master. Governance, planning, staffing, volunteers, finance, technical oversight, marketing, evaluation, and more. You'll find it all in the most comprehensive soccer club management reference on the market today. Pick up your copy on the Amazon platform or at don'tblamethesoccerparents.com today. Imagine not having the chance to play sports as a kid. Imagine not having those memories, those experiences. Imagine your childhood without them. If I wasn't able to play, I would have missed my friends. I will miss being active and the chance of being competitive. Basketball has taught me how to work as a team, how to co communicate, and how to adapt to any situation. My goal it is to play for Team Canada and make it to the WNBA. The skills kids learn through sports are carried with them throughout their lives. But all across Canada, kids are being left on the sidelines because they don't have the resources to play. We owe all kids a chance to experience everything that sport has to offer. Help unleash the full potential in every child. Visit kidsport.ca so all kids can play. Our second interview today in the Register Room is with the president of an organization that features prominently in my Amazon best-selling book, Don't Blame the Soccer Parents, and is a shining example of what can be done regardless of organizational size or market size. Queen City United Soccer Club is a relatively small youth soccer club in the east side of Regina, the capital of Prairie Province, Saskatchewan, in central Canada. The club registers player volumes in the hundreds, which by North American youth soccer standards makes it relatively small. As you North American register rumors know, some large youth soccer clubs in North America have player enrollments that push five digits. But what's impressive about Queen City United is the approach they took to establishing the club's vision, mission values, and associated identity and customer value proposition, and how they've stuck to it, even if it meant losing some players to other local soccer clubs. This work was driven heavily by the club's dynamic president, Chris Bailey, and the results of taking this values-driven approach have been breathtaking. Pre-pandemic, the club had tripled in size in terms of enrollment and established its own private indoor training center which is pretty important in Saskatchewan where the winters are long and very cold. Let's listen now to Quincy United's story as I chat with club president, Chris Bailey. So Chris Bailey, welcome to the Register Room. Hey Paul, how are you? Great to have you on, I'm great. I think just to get started, Maybe you could just tell us a little bit about the vision that was behind creating uh, Queen City United Soccer Club. Well, we had come through in 14, I suppose, was a very disruptive 
um, period in, in Regina soccer. Right. Um, and QC had always been, um, in my opinion and many others sort of elevated among the other clubs in terms of how we approach the game with our coaches. We, we paid our coaches. We had highly certified coaches. If you wanted to coach with us, you had to commit to education through the CSA and working through a program from whatever stage you were at. Uh, we had other uh, what some people thought odd rules. You you're not allowed to coach your own child uh, in our club. You could, yeah. you know, we we that policy was in there for a long time. But I think the big thing was we'd come through this really tumultuous period uh, where, uh, frankly, our club was under attack. Throughout all of that, we, my my message to our board and our management was always take the high road, take the high road, work on what we are doing. We cannot concern ourselves with the battle outside of it or the politics or anything like that let me handle that as the chair of the board let's just keep making this the best club that we can and keep committed to the things that we value and so from that came well what do we value yeah and they had these values were in the club right but not formalized not written down and we parsed every single word of our mission vision value like every preposition and conjunction i mean it was yeah every single word we wanted something that was substantial, long-standing, and frankly reflected what we all kind of knew. But we needed to crystallize it. So, 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 what? Hearing you talk, there's two things striking striking out to me. The first one would be that you seem very clear on identifying point of difference, and maybe that might have been because out yes. of a sense of survival or need to survive, we need to defend our turf here because we're threatened. And the other thing you're mentioning is you didn't start with a vision or mission and then try to impose that on your operation. It looks like you look very carefully at what your club already was and brought the good stuff out and just almost crystallized it. Right. So it wasn't, yes. Did that, did that help then in terms of implementing it? Because it, it would seem to me ostensibly then that you wouldn't have to go through some enormous club cultural change management exercise to get to this beautiful statement that you've created over here. You're really just drawing out the good stuff that you know is there, right? That is a great observation, Paula. Um, when I think about uh, when we were sort of complete and had this our little baby to show to the world, there were no puzzled looks on people's faces. There was, yeah. it was all, oh yeah, of course, because it was there, like I like like you like you articulated, it was there in the club and had been building for a number of years. And I think the duress we were under in that time really crystallized it. We really connected with our membership during that period. It was probably eight to 12 months uh, of uh, member meetings and town halls, getting feedback, always telling our members what we were doing with each stage of things, quashing rumors. And again, above all, never really trashing the other side or being going negative, just always saying, this is what's happening. This is how we're responding to it. And I think from all of that, like you say, it, it was, it, it wasn't difficult to actually arrive at the real core values. Um, yeah. Wording it and wordsmithing it all, it was a challenge. But you know, it came it it came pretty organically. It came because it was there, like you said, it was there. So so let's look. The, the, the vision is quite simple. It's simply three statements: realized potential, greater opportunity, accomplished athletes. And then your mission, which is a wonderful line for me, is to be the center of choice for aspiring athletes through exceptional soccer experiences and three values, not 10 or 15, yeah. and their proper values, not statements, um, a political statement sometimes, simply yeah. integrity, respect, 
and commitment, which we all know is the trifecta of ingredients that goes into accomplishing anything in life. The, the thing I, I can see when you said there, these words were thought through very carefully. I can see that you're using words like center of choice, which is saying you're not going to blast away competition. You want people to elect to be with you, right? And then you mentioned earlier, this is a club for everyone. When you reference exceptional soccer experiences, I love that because that to me just doesn't talk about the kids on the field. Right. It talks about the experiences of everyone that can be a parent having a great time watching training. It can be a sponsor. It can be a coach. It can be anyone. And experience is all in your own mind. Right. That speaks to satisfaction, not the mechanics of of playing the game a certain way. It speaks to I actually got a great experience out of it. And it's dangerous, not dangerous. It's it's very um it's very lofty to go there because some people feel out of control of those things. Well, I can't control how somebody experiences something. That's their brain. But you're you're very brave to go with it, and and there's no sort of fear here of setting fairly lofty um, uh, uh, visions and mission statements here and, and the values. So, I mean, is that how you sort of thought about this? Is, is, yes. Is very, yeah. Yeah. And that's the, the, the um, soccer experiences was a big breakthrough for everybody because we really talked a lot about everything that touches you when you're involved in something like this, whether it's tournaments or charity events or a banquet or training, or I mean, it's just endless. It doesn't have to be about winning the game or kicking the ball or, I mean. So, so, so to the really hard part on this, like how, because I've seen it as, as, as I think I've said, you know, to many people, um, when you walk into your building, you know, and for a club of your size to have a building like that sort of speaks speaks volumes as it is. But when you walk in, there's a really intangible feeling of quality and commitment. And the place just buzzes. It just flows. It's really, really impressive. I haven't seen it in too many other clubs. How have you managed to translate these, these ambitious statements into day-to-day culture that you see when you walk in there? Because that's a really hard thing to do. Uh, we're spoiled in that we have some great people are sort of our four or five main employees. So I mean, we have three and a half employees, I should say, and then one contract guy that sort of are overseeing everything, right? Professional, uh, UA, two of them, UEFA A, licensed coaches. They're just great people. Um, and we had them before we did this. They weren't employees then. They were just our coaches. And then we kind of put them in part-time. Now we've got full-time employees. We're spoiled in that they were open to it. They're the kind of people that embrace these values um so it's it's really not that difficult uh it it's when it becomes difficult is when you've got a big decision to make in terms of uh, a program or or a a tangent you want to go off on you've got to bring and somebody on staff might be really excited about it and make a really good case for for something and you've got to be able as a board to go it's really a square peg in a round hole right here like on the covid theme was there anything about that COVID you think taught you about the importance of having a strong vision and mission and value oh, system? Uh, oh, absolutely. There was so much that um, going through the COVID experience, especially in the first four to five months when we were canceling programs and, and dealing with, you know, people had paid fees and then there wasn't a program and we had to deal with refunds and all of that was being done by the board because we'd laid people off. Our mission and our values t- carried us through that. And the fact that our membership owns those values as well was so apparent in that we had some unfortunate information to dish out to people. Yeah. And I could count on one hand 
the number of people that actually emailed and said, you're terrible and how could you do this? We had dozens of emails saying, we're here for you. We get it. Like, we understand. Uh, we had people say, I don't want my refund. Just make it a donation. We had such um, tremendous support from them that it really validated the approach we've taken in the last four or five years. And it really told me and the board that our members get it. But it really did, uh, it really did illustrate the value in, in really getting your values and mission and vision nailed yeah. down. It does. And, and, and in, in the book, Don't Blend the Soccer Parents, I actually referenced some of the um, customer satisfaction surveying results that, right. from some surveying, this customer satisfaction surveying that we did for you. And, and that the proof is there, right? I mean, you know, they were very high. In fact, I think one of them was a, was a question of the, the number of parents that would actively refer a friend to you to, to you to have a kid play there. And I think it was four out of 10. So every four, every 10 parents, you've got four people who are actually volunteer marketing machines for your club yeah. that's incredible loyalty so you built loyalty in your club that as you as you mentioned when you really need them is has paid out but but that that comes from that kind of loyalty is built in my experience from building really strong belonging and identity around the club where the person yeah. feels part of it it's not just a transactional soccer program that the kid plays in yeah. they really feel part of it and they want and they feel there's there's gratification out of that what do you think's the toughest part of trying to build culture, especially in youth? So I think it's simplicity. And um, I think that's the biggest challenge. And I think that's what, uh, as you said earlier, a lot of clubs, a lot of businesses, they don't even do these exercises. They don't even think it's necessary. Chris Bailey, president of Queen City United Soccer Club in the great province of Saskatchewan, Canada, and Regina. Thanks for joining us today on the Regista Room. My pleasure. Want to tell us what you think of the show and things we could do to make it better? Tell us now at comments at registaroom.com. A great example of culture driving performance is the story of the Canadian men's national team, which, as I'm sure you know, has now qualified for the FIFA World Cup in Qatar later this year. It's the first time a Canadian men's team has qualified for a World Cup since 1986 in Mexico, and it represents a remarkable transformation of Canadian men's soccer over the last 10 years. Indeed, it was only five years or so ago that the men's national team in Canada was ranked lower than 90th in the world compared to their current ranking of 33rd. Yes, the transformation of this team has been in no small part due to the outstanding leadership of coach John Herdman, and the identification of eligible Canadian talent overseas not active in the Canadian soccer system. But there's also been a sea change in Canadian soccer at large, particularly at youth level over the last 10 to 15 years, that I suspect has had a part of it. This ranges from adoption of long-term player development philosophies at important youth age groups to the blossoming, blossoming of more professionally run youth soccer clubs and private soccer academies, and on to the advent of pro and, importantly, semi-pro soccer leagues across the country. The culture is changing as a result, and a central component of that, I believe, is belief and pride. What do you think? Well, I asked you, and here are some of the comments I got back. 
I feel there's a more strategic approach being taken to every aspect on and off the field, says Matthew Thorpe. And I could not agree more with you, Matthew. And this ranges, I think, from the top in terms of the long-term backing and the coaching staff at national team level are being given right now, right down to the technical planning at youth club level that's infinitely more strategic and longer term than it was 10 years ago. So great comment, Matthew. Keep them coming. Sonia Missio, the great Canadian soccer writer, chips in here from Toronto, Ontario with, I have an unpopular answer that's not magical or whimsical. Technology and accessibility. We've always been a soccer nation, just not a Canadian soccer nation until people could see it, like actually see it on screens. It's almost like representation matters. And that's a great perspective there, Sonia. Soccer has always been a big part of Canadian life. It's been the country's biggest participation sport for years. And it's a religion to many Canadians, particularly uh, those who've come into the country and, you know, those around the entirely hugely diverse population that we have in Canada, where soccer is part of their life and not just a game. But in the past, this has generally been hidden from the media, particularly on the male side, due to a lack of international results. But now the results are happening on the male side. Maybe the curtain is finally being pulled down on the true soccer culture that has, in fact, been there all along but simply has not been evident through showcasing by mainstream media. Great perspective, Sonia. Letting John Herdman do what he was hired to do. How often have we seen people hired and hands tied from the off, says John Highland in Markham, Ontario. And yeah, that's a huge one, John. And you have to give credit where credit is due to Canada soccer here, because that trust placed in Herdman is a direct result of the culture of trust and accountability Canada soccer is currently placing on its people. And this ultimately comes from the board, which is absolutely night and day from where it was when I served as the chair of its nominations committee over 10 years ago. Great contributions there from all you register rumours. Please keep them coming. Uh, uh, email me at comments at registerroom.com, including perspectives, please, from the US and outside North America at large, if you're listening from there. So on the notion of national team transformation, my final interview today takes us away from the sport of soccer entirely and indeed away from the US and Canada, where we've visited so far with the interviews in this episode. And we go this time to Ireland and the sport of field hockey. In my book, Don't Blame the Soccer Parents, did I mention you should buy it? I open with a story of my time at the Irish Hockey Association. They call it hockey there, by the way, not field hockey, as its chief executive. The story describes a scene of utter gloom after the Irish team had been badly beaten by England in a televised match. But it then cuts to the same team beating the same English team in England again, this time to win bronze medal in the European Championships just 10 years later. The high-performance director of Irish hockey at the time, who I talk about in that story, was a guy by the name of Dave Passmore. Dave was the chief architect of the cultural change that happened in Irish hockey in those intervening 10 years that resulted in a remarkable change in on-field performance from Irish hockey's national teams over that period and indeed beyond. Dave's still involved in the Irish hockey setup, but he works now more with junior national teams and he's pursued his career in elite coach education and development in broader sport at large but when I worked with him back at Irish Hockey in 2004 he just left 
English hockey and had arrived over to Ireland with a completely different set of values, ideals, commitments and overarching mindset that was new and at times challenging to the pre-existing Irish way of doing things. Listen now to how Dave Passmore brought Irish hockey's international performance from substandard to world-class over 10 years. And welcome, Dave Passmore, to the Register Room. Great to have you on, mate. Yeah, nice to be here. Maybe you could just start by describing, because we started at the same time, as I recall. I think we started at the same time in 2004, if I'm right, late 2004. I was hired as the first chief executive and you were hired as the first performance director. So we were in brand new positions, um, brand new working together. What what did you f- see of the culture in Irish hockey when you joined? But when I arrived, there were, there were a number of obstacles. Um, one of them was a lack of confidence and there was lack of this belief. And it was just used as an, an excuse. And um, Craig Fulton, my assistant coach who came in, when he took over from me, he created this thing of no excuses. We're not going to use excuses. Um, that, that, you know, they're just challenges that we've got to circumnavigate. I mean, for me, it's about what the athletes want. And you've got to say, well, do you want this? If you do want it, well, how do we get there? And then finding cultural architects, um, that's a, a term that Sven Joran Eriksson, who was the England soccer manager, um, a successful Swedish manager, he talked about. So, um, and as an Englishman, we could never understand why David Beckham was made the England captain yeah. um, because he could barely string two words together at that time. Um, yeah. But what Sven said, well, I, I don't need to say anything. I need, to, I need the players around him to watch how hard he works off the ball, how much time he spends practicing his free kicks. Yeah. And it's not about what we say as a cultural architect, it's what we do. So we, we, it wasn't just about impacting the top of the structure, that men's team, but finding in their cultural architects that anyone coming into that system to a system with good structures could then see, well, this is how I need to behave. Yeah. You know, this is how I need to work. This is how, what, how I need to eat. This is how I need to sleep, etc. So in any organization, your culture is often led by your cultural architects. And if those people are highly driven and believe that they can be successful, and that's what's happened to our women's team. Hmm. And what ultimately happened to that men's team is they actually started to realize that they didn't need to be the underdogs. They didn't need to be the team that always narrowly missed out. But it takes time. And that's the thing that people don't give to these things. Right. You've got to be patient. You know, if I say, if I say, right, I'm going to change your, let's take golf as an example, because everybody knows about golf. You can't change your swing overnight just by identifying a problem. It takes time. And then you've got to, then you'll revert back to type. You'll go back to your old swing at times and then you have to adjust it again. Then it needs to work under pressure. And all those things take time. And that's the biggest thing people don't have um, in sport is they always go for the short-term results. And one of the reasons is, is the pressures and the people around you pulling you back. So you're trying to make people believe and create a sense of uh, the structures um, and then you've got everybody trying to pull you back or you don't get the short-term results or they don't like the way you're, you're coaching people how to play. The parents want short-term results. The board want this to happen. Um, and we had to explain, you'll recall this, to the sports council, this is going to take seven to ten years. 
Yeah. And it took 10 years. And now we've got both teams are qualified for the Olympics and they've never qualified for the Olympics post, post World War. When do you think you start to saw, see the culture change? When did you start to see some, some results, albeit very small, uh, that might have given you some sort of confidence to continue and, and, and see that this was actually going to happen? Well, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because you mentioned that game in England. We, that, was, that, that was eight weeks before we'd gone to a European Cup, albeit a second division, a European Championship second division. So there, there's, mm-hmm. Europe is split into t- uh, leagues of eight. And there's four now, and we were in the second one, and we won it. And we just thought, or some of the players thought, oh, we'll ball beat us now. And I heard all the talk, and you had these people pulling you back, and then a group of athletes that are trying to uh, think that they're great, they're better than they are. So the whole point of going to play those England games for me is going, well, yeah, we've come to this point, but if we're now going to be world beaters, and it was, I think, eight months before we went to a World Cup qualifier, we needed to show them what good looked like right. and what it felt like. And it was really interesting because we went to that game and I knew we were going to lose, but it was about seeing where we're at and seeing where do we need to improve? Because if you don't have that, you don't have the lessons from which to work on. And some guys after that said, mm, this isn't worth it. I can't believe I can get there. You've got other players. So we had some dropouts. Yes. Yeah, which which was disappointing at the time because a couple of those were good athletes. But it was the young guys who were like, no, we can do this. We just need time and we will do this. And it has to come from within then. It has to come from the players because making good athletes teams, it's about the intrinsic motivation of, of an individual. So I genuinely believe almost anyone can achieve and be good if they put their mind at something and do it really, really well. Okay, so I'm not into the 10,000-hour rule because 10,000 hours of, of poor practice isn't going to make you good. Yeah, It's the quality of what you do. And that's what needs to happen is you need to have structures and systems that surround the people with the quality. So, So I'm going to go back to this game in Nottingham. One of the things that I found interesting is, and I don't know if you deliberately did this or this, this just happened by accident, but you mentioned about sort of trying to, to show the players, you know, where the gaps were and how much of the mountains still had to be climbed through that game. Did you realize you were also showing, you were sort of managing up and showing the board and me and other people uh, what work needed to be done? Because I had a false sense of where we were as well. I felt totally detached from the board at that time. Um, so my vehicle to the board was you, but the key thing was you and I had a good enough relationship and we spent a lot of talking of time talking about these things. And the most important thing you did was you put trust in me and you backed me. You didn't always agree with me, but you put trust in me and you backed me. And that was the most important thing. And I remember sitting on that bus that night and looking into the eyes and there was some staring at the ceiling going, this is not worth it. We're not going to make there. Good, move on. And then these eager eyes going, hell yes, we can make that. We can do that, but we need to do X, Y, and Z. And it's those are the conversations and those are the people that are going to drive on. So Dave, I'm going to, a couple of quick final questions. We're speaking here with Dave Passmore, former high performance director of Irish Hockey here on the Register Room podcast with Paul Varian. A couple of quick questions about how you sort of link all this together, because you've been talking, I've noticed in our conversation, a lot about quite specific 
granular things, really. Is it a matter of just continuing to do those simple things well and good things will happen? Or do you actually have a master plan where it's going to be, okay, by this year's, I need this to be done, this to be done. We're going to circle that event as maybe where we give a reality check. Or is it just like, don't don't encumber yourself and scare yourself with the enormity of the task ahead. Just do the simple things well, communicate well, focus on individual athletes, focus on coaching infrastructure, focus on good systems, focusing on good buy-in, and, and just take it from there? Or, or, or is it more structured for you? Yeah, I think, look, you, you, you've got to get the structures and systems in place. Then you've got to make up everybody buy into the philosophy that you're bringing in your club. And then you've got to train your people so that your people, so the coaches, so that your board understand what this is about. And then your coaches have got to understand how to be good developmental coaches, what that looks like. And for me, sport mm. is a simple game. Or most invasion sports like hockey, uh, soccer is, a, is a, a simple game made complex by coaches. So keep the simple things because ultimately you can't employ tactics without technical ability. Yes. So final question for you, Dave. What was the one major piece of advice you would give to boards of directors of clubs who are looking to transition um, their culture? Um, and let's not define what that transition is from, from A to B, but they just want to change what, what's the number one thing they can do to achieve that, given that they are not on field, not necessarily technical, but they are governing? Uh, spend the time to bringing experience to develop something that's robustable and great and set yourself long-term KPIs, not short-term KPIs based on results or individual results. Um, and then build that in and share that out so everybody knows what they're doing but it takes time it needs expertise and then sell the message so i've probably given you more than one thing but it's all about creating that vision and structure need help managing your amateur sport organization but don't know where to turn look no further than capitus consulting your dependable partner to help you through the challenges and issues you routinely face in and around your sport boardroom. At Capitus Consulting, we're different. We've directly managed amateur sport organizations from community club to national governing body. We understand your side of the fence because we've been there ourselves. We know from experience what makes sport organizations successful and where they go wrong. Reach out to us today at capitusconsulting.ca and let's start building your sport business today. So culture, values, identity, yes, they tend to be overglorified and are absolutely spoken about far more than they're actually implemented and acted upon. But they are not fantastical and they are not impossible to establish, develop and use as really effective performance enhancers for your soccer organisation. In this episode of The Register Room, I've given you three examples from two different sports in three different countries that show you exactly how this can be done. What's common across them all? Well, firstly, I hope you've guessed it. There's clear leadership from the top in all these three organisations. Scott at North Carolina Fusion, Chris at Queen City United and Dave at Irish Hockey all had the strength of leadership and confidence in their own abilities and understanding of what was needed to champion the development of a strong new culture and lead the change that was needed to do it. But look closer. What other important commonalities do you see? Tell me now. Email me at comments at registerroom.com with any that you see. But I'll leave you in this podcast with one important one. 
and is this. Belief in people. All three of the sport leaders we heard from today built the process by starting with a strong coalition of influential people who bought in. Scott, Chris and Dave didn't try to do what they did on their own. They sought out support and guidance and they inspired people and didn't seek to control people and they brought people in who thought like them, believed in the same things as them. They built teams of people with integrity who were motivated about the same things and had the same mindsets. Therein is an effective team and therein is the birth of a culture. My name is Paul Varian, and you're in the register room, where amateur soccer goes off-field. As always, it's been my pleasure to be with you today. Thanks for listening, and until the next time, stay safe and stay well. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Register Room, where amateur soccer goes off-field. Join us again for the next episode. Subscribe today at capituslearning.com or listen wherever you access your favorite podcasts.